Welcome to Politalk, a news podcast that aims to better young people's understanding of the political world. In Politalk, we break down the biggest news stories of the past week. We tell you not just what happened, what we think about these stories, but why they matter. I'm Sam Korf. And I'm Charlie Baldwin. This week, we have three major stories. Biden's COVID-19 relief package that was just signed into law. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's alleged sexual misconduct. And all things vaccines. So welcome to our very first episode. We are so excited to be here and we hope that you are too. We are going to jump right into our first story. This past Thursday, President Joe Biden signed into law a historic $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package. Key features include stimulus checks of up to $1,400 per person. These will send money to about 90% of American households, only excluding the most affluent individuals. There is a federal boost to weekly unemployment benefits, a $300 boost, in fact. There is also an expansion of the child tax credit. And finally, $350 billion in state and local aid, as well as billions of dollars for K-12 schools to help students return to the classroom to assist small businesses hit hard by the pandemic. And finally, for the research, development, and distribution of vaccines. As for the impact of the bill, Biden said to the press pool in the Oval Office that this historic legislation is about rebuilding the backbone of the country and giving people in this nation, working people, middle-class folks, people who built the country, a fighting chance. I truly believe that this will be a game changer for American families. It's going to go a long way in mitigating the pain caused by a year of economic restrictions. Yes, absolutely. So we would like to hone in on one of the less talked about, but likely one of the most notable aspects of the bill. It is the expansion of the child tax credit, whereby nearly every American parent is guaranteed up to $3,600 a year per child, no matter how many children. We should be thinking about this program as two things. First, a universal income program for children. Again, this is guaranteeing that parents will receive monthly checks solely because they are parents. We should also think about this as an anti-poverty program. When we think about poverty, it's widely understood that one of the most important factors is having children. Among married couples, households, the poverty rate for families with children is so much higher than those without children. And those in government talk so much about family values and supporting families, especially on the right, but they do nothing to put those words into action. Finally, we have this revolutionary provision that will pave the way for a social safety net for children. So let's apply this to a theoretical family. A low-income parent with two children under six would be getting an annual income of roughly $7,000. That is real, tangible money. Charlie, as you said before, this is really going to be a game changer for American families. Yeah, absolutely. And as for the implications of this tax credit, because this is a nearly universal benefit, it only doesn't apply to the most affluent Americans. It is estimated that this provision will cut the child poverty rate nearly in half and by more than half for children of color. If done, if the child poverty rate is in fact cut in half, that will be a seismic feat. In America, nearly 11 million children live in poverty. That's roughly one in seven kids, and they make up almost a third of all Americans living in poverty. That number should be obviously unimaginable in one of the world's wealthiest countries, and yet child poverty has remained extraordinarily high for decades. But it's programs like these that are going to help those who suffer the most. I think it's also important to note that there is no partisan basis for disagreeing with this. 
this was good for the Dems because I don't think it's something that the Republicans could vote against while remaining morally conscious. But I mean, we saw what happened, right? So props to the Democrats for getting it done. Yeah, this also connects with the timeline. The expansion of this tax credit is only placed for, I believe, a year. So this is most definitely not a permanent thing. However, the hope is that for the year it's in place, Republicans will have the time to, you know, come to their senses. And this is because when it comes time to make this a more permanent plan, and if Republicans remain opposed to it, they are going to have to face their constituents and say that, yeah, we're taking this away from you. That is not going to go over remotely well with the American people, so. Yeah, definitely. Overall, this is an extraordinary legislative accomplishment. I really don't think that there's another way to put it. This is especially incredible considering that most poverty analysts did not think this was a short-term, not even a long-term goal for the United States. And this is largely due to the stigma around cash assistance. Traditional Republicans are pretty wary of giving direct cash payouts to individual citizens on the basis of income. There's this concern that the money will be misused, but the pandemic has fundamentally changed that policy environment. With so many more individuals needing aid, the politics of providing that cash assistance has lost some of its stigma. Another factor that's changed is the racial environment. With the unrest that's been highlighted to such an extent this past year, The Democratic Party in particular has been looking for ways to address structural racism. This is a policy that, while universal, has the greatest impact for Black and Latino families. What this is, the fact that a program that seemed so out of reach is now here, that is the result of a classic window of opportunity. Democrats have been pushing for a program like this for the past few decades or so, but the situation created by the pandemic has given it the opportunity to sail through. While we're on the topic of the bill, I think we should talk about the minimum wage provision. Before the bill crossed the Capitol building, meaning it went from the House to the Senate, Senate parliamentarian Elizabeth McDonough removed the $15 minimum wage provision, essentially saying that if you send this here with it in it, the bill won't get passed, so don't bother, which in a way absolutely could have been right. We know that centrist Democrats in the Senate, including Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, have signaled their opposition to a minimum wage increase. This was also just distinct enough from the rest of the bill. You could kind of tell that, you know, although most Democrats definitely thought that it would be important to the overall economic recovery, they were also kind of piling the provision into the bill because they could. And this has been a legislative priority for a while. So the final vote for the bill was 50 to 49. There were 99 total votes instead of the usual 100 because Dan Sullivan, a Republican senator from Alaska, was absent during voting. The bill was also a whopping 76% popular among the American electorate. This poll included people from all sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives. Everybody got a say, and it was 76% popular. Sam, I'm asking for your assistance in helping me reiterate just how insane that is. Getting 76% of Americans to agree on something is unheard of. This is especially true considering that a large chunk of those people don't even believe that Joe Biden is the true president. Yeah, absolutely. The cognitive dissonance is just insane. I mean, 76% favorability is remarkable in any political context. Mm -hmm. You could poll the American people on whether kittens are cute and it would come back with like 30% favorability. This is just incredible. 
the fact that there is such a high favorability and yet it was still decided along a party vote, those Republicans are going to have to go back to their constituents when it's time for re-election and explain why they voted to keep aid out of their hands. Right. I also wanted to talk about how a lot of Americans complain that Democrats are weak or always fumble the bag. Now, that is often true, don't get me wrong, but this was most certainly not the Democrats' fault, at least the House Democrats' fault. It bothers me personally because I'm seeing House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer get a lot of flack on Twitter, even though they weren't the ones who removed the provision from the bill. Again, it was Elizabeth McDonough, Senate parliamentarian, who removed it. It is likely that the provision would have gotten cut anyways, since there just isn't enough legislative support for it to pass. So McDonough just really saved this in a few days. Yeah, and this isn't due just to the Democrats having such a slim majority. As the balance of power currently is in the Senate, with 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans and Vice President Harris casting that tie-breaking vote, obviously in favor of the Democrats, with that balance of power, every single Democrat has to be behind legislation in order for it to pass. And we're not even getting to the filibuster, which requires an even wider margin support. We could talk about that for quite a while, but separate from that, a majority is 50 plus one, so everyone has to stick together. But again, Senators Manchin and Cinema have expressed their opposition to raising the minimum wage, so it just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. And on the off chance that you both are listening, Joe Manchin, switch parties. Please save us any more pain. <laughs> and Kirsten Cinema, your little thumbs down stunt you pulled with the little curtsy, it just was not it. Uh, obviously, Democrats that wanted the provision in the bill agreed to the version without the minimum wage because at the end of the day, there are American families in dire need of assistance right now. This is not the hill that Democrats are willing to die on. We may want them to, and in an ideal world, of course they should fight for this, but you have to look at the larger picture. This is our first episode, so our listeners don't know this yet, but it isn't often that I go to bat for a politician unless I'm getting volunteer hours or money to do so, especially Pelosi and Schumer. Not because I don't like them, but because of the sheer amount of power they have. One more thing while we're on the topic of the STEMI. There's been- For the people who are not extraordinarily active on Twitter, yes, we are still referring to the stimulus check. Anyways, uh, there has been information circulating on Twitter, and we verified that this is true because please don't immediately believe anything you see on that godforsaken platform. Anyway, (laughs) tweets have been circulating informing homeless people that they too have access to the $1,400 check. If you are homeless or know someone who is homeless, you can direct them to a tax return office to file for an EIP return, which is basically a fancy word for stimulus check. Somehow, they will end up with a debit card with the money on it. You can click the link in our Instagram bio to learn more about this. So we are going to take a quick break. We will be right back. We are back. Several former aides and advisors of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo have come forward with sexual harassment allegations. An impeachment inquiry has been opened over the misconduct claims and is progressing by the minute. This past Thursday, over 50 Democrats of the New York State Legislature and nationally ranking New York reps, including U.S. Senators Schumer and Gillibrand and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, have said that Cuomo has, quote, lost the confidence of the public and called for him to step down. Earlier this week, Biden also said that the governor should resign if the investigations do, in fact, find him guilty. This is not, I'd say, something that really surprised me. Um, It was incredibly disappointing and disturbing, obviously. 
but a powerful man using his elevated position to harass and intimidate young women, that is a situation as old as time. Right. Um, I was completely disappointed. At the beginning of the pandemic, New York became the U.S.'s epicenter. And even though we live in Virginia, in the spring of last year, I was watching Cuomo's daily briefings as if I was a New Yorker. He was who people in that state and many in the country look up to, especially because at the time we had a leadership void and the president off in fairyland telling us to inject ourselves with bleach. Uh, Cuomo was who I and many others looked up to. This is a shining example of why we can't deify individuals. Around this time a year ago, media outlets were praising Cuomo for his handling of New York's COVID-19 response. Now we have these revelations and we have a stark reminder that Cuomo is an elected official hired by New Yorkers to do his job. If we treat public officials like they're infallible, we will be disappointed every time. Yeah. One of Cuomo's accusers, Jessica Bakeman, wrote a piece in the New York Magazine titled, Cuomo Never Let Me Forget I Was a Woman. We'll link it in our social media. I fully recommend that you read it. It's not long and it tells a really important account of the situation. In the article, Bakeman talks about Cuomo's advances and describes more broadly the cultural environment in which this occurred. As I previously mentioned, powerful men often use their positions to do just really shitty things. Why? Because they can. And I'm going to read a direct quote from her article that I think really illustrates this. The way Cuomo operates is by daring women to make an impossible choice, endure his abuse silently, or speak up and risk your career. Wow. Which, yeah, it's just horrific. What I got from this article is that Albany, the capital of New York and where the governor does a lot of his work, is an environment in which sexual harassment is not only tolerated, but it's an environment where it thrives. Additionally, Bakeman references a tweet from a New York journalist that calls sexual harassment in New York politics, quote, as pervasive as air, which, again, just horrific. And it points to another issue that wherever Andrew Cuomo goes after this, his inevitable departure will not alone end this toxic cultural environment. Further steps need to be taken. Right. Do you think it's too soon to be making assumptions about Cuomo's conduct? No, not in the least bit. Um, Obviously, I think they should have the investigation, but making assumptions about the conduct itself, I don't think it's too too early to do that. Yeah. What about resignation? Do you think he should resign? He absolutely should. Numerous individuals have come forward with serious, credible allegations of misconduct and abuse. This is unacceptable anywhere, but especially in the highest levels of politics. You know, As Democrats, we are so willing to unite in opposition against Republicans accused of misconduct. For Trump and Kavanaugh, Democrats swiftly and in massive numbers came out against these figures due to credible allegations of sexual assault. But if we're not willing to do the same for a prominent member of our own party, I think that that's morally wrong. It's hypocritical, and we need to hold public officials accountable and to the same standard, regardless of party. Yep. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back. This week, the Biden administration announced its plan to purchase an additional 100 million doses of the newly approved one-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Additionally, the government 
has done what is the equivalent to pre-ordering 100 million doses of the not yet FDA approved AstraZeneca vaccine. This brings the total of government bought vaccines to 600 million with enough shots to vaccinate 300 million people. This is despite the number of vaccine eligible Americans being 267 million, which has resulted in calls for Biden to move vaccines to other needier countries. Biden, however, is maintaining his stance that America should be, quote, overprepared and oversupplied in case of unpredictable circumstances. Jen Psaki, Biden's White House press secretary, added that Biden's, quote, first priority and focus is on ensuring that the American people are vaccinated. And once we're at that point, we will have a discussion about what's next. So we also wanted to talk about the vaccine in a geopolitical sense, specifically how our vaccine efforts relate to China's. The United States has a long, fraught history with China. We've been fighting for decades over who is the world power. The pandemic, and specifically vaccine efforts, have been and will continue to be a primary factor of who takes that top international spot. And at the current rate we in China are going, it is inevitable that China becomes the international leader. Yeah, China has promised it will deliver half a billion doses of its vaccines to more than 45 countries. It's a campaign that many believe to be face-saving. After initially butchering its response to the COVID outbreak, China is eager to turn around public opinion and change the narrative. It's also a campaign rooted in global influence. What's happening here goes so much further than the pandemic and will continue long after the pandemic is over. One of the most visible drivers of this is something called the Belt and Road Initiative, which is this massive infrastructure project that China hopes will usher in a new era of economic prosperity for countries in Asia and beyond. The project spans more than 100 countries from East Asia to Europe. Many call it a Trojan horse for Chinese military and economic expansion, as well as regional development. And there are pretty clear signs that these infrastructure investments translate into political influence, like at the UN Human Rights Council, where last year, China won support for its brutal suppression of the Hong Kong protests. Four out of five of the countries that backed China had signed up for the Belt and Road Initiative. It's also important to note that there is a strong desire to show the superiority of the Chinese system. They are showcasing themselves as this example of why in the 20th century, you know, democracy was cute, but the 21st century has challenges that demand a system more akin to China's. President Biden has pushed back on this, obviously, saying that democracy will and must prevail. But how that is accomplished is by demonstrating that democratic nations can deliver vaccines on a large scale. It cannot be solely China giving vaccines to developing countries. It's also unquestionable that vaccine rollout should be done simply because it's in the interest of humanity. But my God, we're talking about China here. One really does not need to go deep into China's record to see that they don't really operate in the best interest of humanity. And it's also not just a battle for influence. Where China's vaccines go, its ideals follow. Although it's not assured that China will fulfill the role of providing countries with vaccines, as there is competition from Russia as well as India and the U.S. is getting into it. But for China, this is a face-saving and influence-wielding operation. China's vaccination program comes with strings attached. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken recently said something along the lines of, you know, certain requests are being made by China. 
and there could possibly be stronger requests made for countries in order to receive the vaccine. So if that country doesn't comply, China's just going to let them continue to suffer? Well, it's China. Yeah, exactly. China is playing politics with people's lives, and we are finally starting to challenge their vaccine diplomacy, especially with our participation in what is known as the Quad. The Quad is a group made up of the United States, Japan, India, and Australia. It's not a new organization, but we have committed to working with these countries to manufacture 1 billion doses of the COVID vaccine to Asia by 2022. There is a blend of interests at play, including ensuring that these countries have access to safe and effective vaccines. But Southeast Asia has been a major recipient of Chinese vaccines. And the Quad's deal is fundamentally about countering China's power there. Right. And on the campaign trail, we both witnessed that then-candidate Biden really relied on the tough-on-China rhetoric when it came to targeting more moderate voters. But when Biden is also saying that the U.S. will not share its vaccine supplies whatsoever until every American who wants a vaccine has it, those statements are at odds. Biden is trying to walk this really fine line between humanitarian efforts, you know, wanting to ensure that as many Americans are inoculated as possible. And on the other side is geopolitical efforts with being tough on China and ensuring that they don't dominate Earth with their vaccines. But you can't hoard your supplies and vaccinate the world at the same time. Right. I mean, Our resources as a country have allowed us to buy this massive chunk of the world's vaccines and pour them, as you said, from, frankly, the countries that need them the most. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how the U.S. tries to challenge China's vaccine diplomacy because, you know, the Quad can pledge that they're going to distribute all these vaccines, but are they really going to deliver? Because it's a lot more complicated than just a statement. Definitely. So we're nearing the end of our episode. So one final point. At the moment, America is in a decently good place for vaccinations, knock on wood. But that doesn't mean that we're going to stay here if the variants become out of control. Now, that's a big if, but it still means that you have got to ring all the bells and blow all the whistles and bang all the pots and pans you possibly can to get you and everyone in your community vaccinated. Now is not the time to be shy. This is literally, no pun intended, our one shot as a global community to get this over with. And quite frankly, I never thought I'd be saying this, but I actually want to go back to school and be a normal teenager for the couple years I have left of that title. Yeah, and I want to have a decently normal senior year. So I actually signed up just a few days ago for the vaccine through both the Virginia Department of Health and Fairfax County's vaccine program, since Fairfax County has an effort separate from the state. Um, The age requirement is 16, which I fall into, but I also have asthma, so I fall into one of the groups that's currently eligible to be vaccinated, and I'm going to milk that for all I can. Um, Charlie, I can't remember if you're 16. Are you eligible yet? I am 16. Um, I'm not eligible to get the vaccine now, but I'm eligible, I think, to get on the list, uh, or on at least the waiting list. So I will uh, get that link from you as soon as I can, and I will also put that link in the link tree in our Instagram bio. Yes, we absolutely will. That's all we have for this week's episode of Politalk. Please stay in touch. You can email us with feedback, questions, and all your other comments at politalkpodcast1 at gmail.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at politalk underscore podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Sam Korf. And I'm Charlie Baldwin. We'll see you next week. Get your shots. Get your shots.